Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. My guests today are the founders and owners of Otter Craft Distilling, otherwise known as OCD. What a great name. Julie and Edward Otter are a sister and brother team who walked away from high-flying corporate roles to start up their own premium whiskey and vodka distillery right here in Sydney. In 2015, Edward started experimenting with distilling whiskey underneath his garage and after years of talking about it with Julie, they decided to go into business together to create a locally distilled premium spirits brand using only sustainable and traceable ingredients. Edward is the distiller and creator of everything inside the bottle. And Julie is the creator of everything outside the bottle. They plan everything together, write it down formulaically and agree on processes so they've got the family business down to a fine art. OCD was in its early stages as a business, it only been around for eight months, being picked up by elite restaurants and bars in Australia and winning some coveted alcohol awards. Then COVID struck and OCD ground to a halt until they quickly pivoted and started to manufacture a World Health Organization approved hand sanitizer. They were able to use the same methods and processes to create a totally different product. Now, I'm going to ask Julian Edward how their business has been able to successfully redirect from making premium whiskey and vodka to manufacturing hand sanitizer, of all things, and how they're planning to maintain the hand sanitizer product line and retain new customers, but how to re-pivot back into their whiskey and vodka business, how do they market their business from here on end, and what are they doing trying to raise money to expand the business to get scale? So, let's get into it. Julian Edward, welcome to The Mentor. Thanks for having Hi, us, thank mate. Thank you for having you us. You brought your, uh, all your goodies here with me too. I'm looking at all these OCD um, bottles of vodka sitting here in front of me and also on my right I'm looking at a whole lot of hand sanitizers. Yep. Um, right, let's just uh, go back a step um, before we start talking about these wonderful products sitting in front of me. I feel like opening all of them. Um, they look <laughs> they look very cool actually, very interesting. Thank to, you. To look at. Thank I just, you. I'm dying to um, pull one of these tapes and open the wax top. I mean, is that how it works? I mean, is that, is that, is that the whole idea? Yeah, the, yeah, they were designed for that, but we actually have a lot of customers cutting around the top because they like to keep the embossed ribbon and the wax, and they were sending us in photographs of what they were doing. So in the distillery now, that's actually how we open them, but the ribbon was there to It's yeah, very clever, actually, because, I mean, I, I, for people who are listening, uh, because this is audio, um, I've got a bottle of uh, vodka in here. This is a uh, cacao vodka, um, and, um, but on the top of the bottle, is, uh, it's a wax top, Yep. It has ribbon going to um, ribbon coming out of the wax on both sides of the bottle. And what it makes me feel like doing, you can tell me if I'm right or not, is that I, I feel like putting the bottle on the table and pulling the wax like it's going to blow up or something like that. And, and is, that is that how it works? Because you pull you pull the ribbon and the wax pulls out and the top comes off. Yeah, yeah it, it yeah. makes it easier to open because otherwise a wax top is, you know, it's hard to get off. It's very clever though. It's, it immediately makes me want to open it up and I want to touch this bottle. I mean, that's very, very clever. Well, that's the um, goal. Yeah, yeah. Was, <laughs> was that the objective that you want to make me touch this bottle? Like not me, but anybody. Well, yeah, not just you, but yeah, everyone was yeah. the idea. I mean, it's it, it's an attractive product and I think we put a lot of effort into what's inside the bottle. So Julie does a lot of the work on the outside of the bottle. So the idea is to make it look as as good as it is on the inside, on the outside. And that's not an easy feat to do. Uh, especially in liquor. I want to go back a little bit. Um, let's go back in history a little bit. Uh, you're both probably in your 40s um, by looking at you both. Um, well, I don't know which one's the older or the younger, but I'm going to say you're the oldest. 
<laughs> oh, there's another free bottle for yes. me at the end of this. And, um, and, and, and you are, but, I, what's killing me, by the way, you guys are doing what's something I've always wanted to do, um, that is have uh, my own alcohol brand. I, I used to own beer brands many years ago before that craft beer became, craft beer became popular. I sold out before the uh, all the money was made. So, um, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, vodka and whiskeys are something that's really you know I, they're things I drink. My preference is whiskey, but I do drink vodka as well. Um, but whiskey is my preferred taste. Uh, but I want to go back. Now, you guys had both had careers prior to being in this business, alcohol business. Yeah. Let me just ask you, what was it? I'll go start with you, Julie. Uh, so my background is in fashion and beauty. So in management. Uh, running businesses in Australia and overseas and doing a lot of work with brand building and conceptualising businesses and mainly um, publicly listed businesses as well, so quite large. But when I left the corporate world and in between starting the business with my brother, I've been consulting. So I've been working with startup businesses or small businesses that want to expand internationally and and put their brand out there. Most of the businesses I've been a part of are heavily creative and commercial. I really enjoy the design or the um, the concept sign of, of businesses and then how they can work commercially. I really like both sides. Can you name a brand? Are you oh, allowed to name one yeah, of the brands? No, no, of course, of course. Uh, so um, I guess in senior management, I was um, I ran MAC Cosmetics in Australia. and MAC, M-A-C? M-A-C, yep, yep. yeah, with Estee Lauder I don't know, but I know, I've seen those shops, yeah. Yeah, um, Peter Alexander Group with yeah, Premier, the, which is the Mark Guinness and Solomon Lou. Yep, yep. yep. Uh, and then I was, um, my last corporate role was CEO for Sass and Bide. Oh, uh, yeah, Sarah's. Is, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it was her was business. Was Sarah yeah. and Heidi, yep, yeah. Heidi's. Um, and then when I left Sass and Bide, I moved into consulting and I, I'm still consulting with a small children's wear brand called Tutu de Monde, and I do other bits and pieces as well. So, but this is really, this is our full-time business. Right. Uh, once we really went into this, we've we've gone into this um, together. We've both left pretty much everything that we're doing. I keep Tutu de Monde as a strategy client and partner, um, the owners, Andre is a good friend of mine as well. So, you know, you just want to stay a part of those things that you've really helped to develop and, and support. So, I mean, one of the things I, I mean, I learned from Sarah, um, and, uh, and she was one of the founders along with Heidi of Sass and Bide, yeah. um, and she's a great mate of mine. She's actually been on the podcast. She oh. they were on the podcast years ago, many, many years ago before they sold. Yeah. And, uh, she was on the mentor TV series as well. I brought her in as an expert, but one of the things that about brands, but one of the things that I found fascinating with her is, um, and I'm sure it's the case, is the case with you too. And I'm looking at it right now is, um, when it comes to retail brands, whether it's fashion or makeup or that's fashion, I guess, whiskey as well, it's all about the merchandising and merchandising is something that's underdone in this country. I think Yeah. not enough people understand good, high quality merchandising. I mean, I, I'm looking at a, a bottle of vodka here. Well, let, let's pick the one here, which has got the gold leaf in it. So, um, and it's got, in terms of merchandising, it's got you've etched in there something as a gift to me. And thanks very much. I appreciate that. Um, but the merchandising is everything. It's how the bottle feels, the shape, how it looks. Will you take me through it? I mean, yeah, uh, do you I mean, mind? Uh, how, no, no, not at all. I mean, when Edward and I were talking about setting this business up, and we talked about it for quite some time, we wanted to make sure that the the product and the merchandising reflected all of the work that he was putting into it. And, you know, I think my brother's one of the best distillers around and the product that we make is is really great. So you actually want it to present in that way. And I do know that no matter exactly to your point how fantastic a product is, if it actually doesn't catch the eye or the interest, it just won't sell. And we obviously wanted something that reflected what we like as well. And I think that was quite important. So, you know, we worked together on the shape and how the bottle feels and the type of glass. We wanted to keep as many things in the packaging as Australian and, and reflecting locally as we can as well. Inside the bottle is is a little bit easier. Well, it's more time consuming, but we're able to do that a bit better. So we wanted to have a beautiful wax finish. I knew that right from the start. I love anything embossed, clearly. There's, there's ribbon and embossing everywhere on the packaging side. And we can also then support some more Australian businesses, but we especially in a market that's, it's very saturated, the, the spirit market. And I spent months just standing in Dan Murphy stores or 
huge liquor barns, just looking at walls and walls of vodka. I don't know what the staff thought of me because I would just stand in there for hours, weekend after weekend. And you just sort of look at everything. And you They're saying this woman was an alcoholic. She's always Pretty in much, but I was walking out not buying anything. So I think they thought I was stalking the places. So I have no idea what was going on in their minds. A reformed alcoholic. <laughs> just desperate for a drink. I just drink. I know, look. I know. It's like but just before you go, because I want to talk about what you've done for your own merchandising, but I want to know in your experience in terms of the businesses you've worked in, what did you learn there about merchandising? I mean, just generally speaking, you're like, because what, what, I mean, Sarah took me through, a, uh, we went through, we went and had a look at a shop in mm. um, Melbourne in those days and uh, she went through this particular shop, not, wasn't one of their shops, it was another brand and um, we filmed this and she went through and talked about just racking. I mean, how the yeah. racking should be at the eye level, um, you know, the, the, the quality of the, the coat hangers and all that. Yeah. The, the process of yeah. um, merchandising, you know, where you put the, the stuff yeah. in the front of the shop or the back of the shop. Yeah. You know, what, what the storytelling. Items, the storytelling, yeah. yes. The, for example, storytelling. I think the, the storytelling in the touch points of any retail space or online, because I think online is exactly it's the a retail same. Space. It's a retail space. Is, is critical. But I think the first thing you have to know is and be very clear about is the DNA of your brand and what, and what that actually means. I think if you're... If you're not clear as to the vision of your brand or what you want the end experience to be, I think it's difficult to build that for the customer. Well, let's we'll start on that then. So, so I think how'd you do that? You need to understand the story of the brand and why it started. I think, which is why is it your story, your, yours and Edward's story? You're telling, or what for is this, it? I think in any business, if you know what the founder's story is and you know why they started and you know what's important to them, you understand their aesthetic and your space, whether it be online or retail. I think should reflect that aesthetic of the brand. It sounds really trivial and I know some people sort of think, you know, you can be a bit over the top about it, but how does the wall feel if you touch it with the paint? How does the coat hanger actually feel? Is it plasticky and you've got this ridiculously expensive top on it or how, how are things folded? Like how do you, it's like walking into somebody's home, I think. How do you want me to feel when I'm in there? And from that, you then start to think visually, am I aligned to the story of the brand? Am I aligned to that product? Mm. So you do need to create that story for them of what to put with what and, and how you want them to experience that in store. You know, when you're in a space, it's like the music, the sense, all of those sorts of things. You know, Peter Alexander, most people will know when they're walking near, near a PA store because they can smell it before they get there. There's a scent that's associated with the store. And that means, you know, and that gives you a sense of comfort and a sense of being in your home, which is what you want when you, people are buying pyjamas. I think there's a couple of steps to it. I, I don't think it's easy to get right, um, which is why I think you want people who feel passionately strong about the experience and and putting the time and the effort into creating those. Well, could you give me an example? Oh, like you said you're at MAC, MAC um, yep, Cosmetics. Cosmetics yeah. And I, I, look, I only know this because I've seen them at airports and and in shopping centres, et cetera. We've never been into one, but... Um, oh, you should. It's all ages, all races, all sexes. But, but, yeah, but uh, well, I, I, haven't, I haven't so far anyway. Um, I, could, I could try at some stage. But um, what, what, are the, what would be, say, the four or five things that Mac always do in terms of making sure that their merchandising is right? I mean, we, I mean what, Mac's a global brand, so there's obviously global guidelines that, that work within that. And so I think something that's really important in a global business is the execution of that. So if I'm in New York or if I'm in Sydney, I have the same level of experience. So visually, there's so much work that goes into how that experience is going to be set up for you. The thing about a brand like Mac was the physical space was critical to ensure that the product was highlighted. Everything in Mac is black, pretty much, fixture-wise uh, fixture oh, right. and packaging so that the colour of the product really stands out and then all the beautiful visuals that go around that, the storytelling of how to put the makeup on and, and all of those pieces in there, all the visuals that you see is so important. Th that whole storytelling thing is really important. I mean, I, I'm going to ask you about the story of OCD. I'm going to ask you how you actually merchandise that story and how you're actually merchandising everything else that you stand for. Yeah. Because I think people who are listening to this, one of the things they need to understand is whether it's online or physical, don't just put your product up on a shelf and just hope that everyone's going to come and buy the bloody thing because uh, you've got to start to work out how you do merchandise and what are all those things you're just talking about, yeah. colour, light, movement, story, the whole thing. Yeah. And the advantage you have um, is that you, you lived and breathed those skills in a previous life. Yes. You're now applying it to this business, yeah. which is pretty important. Edward, you're doing everything on the inside of the bottle. Mm -hmm. um, 
So at the end of the day, I can look, this all looks great and I really want to touch and feel, I want to buy it, I want to try out that, uh, that top, et cetera, but if it's a shit product, <laughs> it's useless, correct? It's cool. uh, 100% correct. So, so take me back to your, your previous experiences in terms of business. Like w- w- where did you work? I've, I have a very different story to Julie. So <laughs> I, um, I left school many years ago, much longer ago than I'd care to think, and uh, I, w- I went straight into the bar industry. Uh, I went straight. I was up at uh, King's Cross, Oxford Street. I was based out of City Tats. Um, I was working at bars, doing cocktails, running them eventually and sort of moved through that. And it was very different back then to what it is now. It was very fast-paced. I mean, not that bars aren't fast-paced today, but comparatively, mm. we didn't have the same restrictions. Uh, from there, I moved around. Um, I went overseas and skied quite a lot, um, a little bit different. And then I sort of got into retail, retail management, and then... Uh, Sort of came back into the liquor industry uh, via, you know, jobs with FMCG companies, VAT uh, for a short time, then Schweppes, and then ultimately Perno, and uh, yeah, and sort of got back into spirits, as it were. But why? Why? Why did you do that? I mean, what was the moment to make this? To make it? Uh, I think just took uh, something I liked a little bit too far. I um, I had the idea, and then had a look at the legalities of how you did it. Uh, that didn't look too hard then looked at how it was actually done in terms of could I actually make spirit. Right. Uh, obviously, the goal was whiskey. Well, why did you say, were you sitting there on your on your lounge watching Netflix or whatever it was? Basically, yeah. yeah. Uh, we were scratching That's your head pretty saying, much the same. I wouldn't mind making some whiskey. On. I'm not going to go up to the bottle shop anymore. I'm going to... Yeah. I'll still go to the bottle shop. There's other stuff, you know, it's buy. It's not all about drinking your own stuff. Well, majority it is, though, to be fair. Um, yeah, no, basically that's what it was. <laughs> I literally was sitting on the couch watching Netflix. Uh, and I started to research it and I started to look at it. I mean, I love making stuff. I like making things. I like using my hands. Uh, I like being creative. Um, I like cooking. So I, I like flavors. And then uh, the more I got into it, the more I realized I could do it. Um, so I started to research, well, how, how could I do this in a way that could be a proof of concept? Were you a mad whiskey drinker or a vodka drinker though? Were like, uh, was, that, yeah. were your, was it your thing? Yeah, whiskey. Yeah. Whiskey yeah. was definitely the thing that, that inspired me. I mean, being at Perno, one of the great things is we had access to everything. Uh, not just our own products, but everyone's products because we got to drink competitors' products and all that sort of stuff and everyone always wanted your opinion, which is great. And, of course, you touted yourself as an expert because that meant you got to drink more stuff. Uh, <laughs> so we had some really good nights. And then you you start to research it more and I tend to get a little bit obsessed on things that I'm researching. So I sort of get more and more into it. And, uh, yeah, it was just a tipping point where I decided to give it a go, uh, which was really, yeah, which was great. And, uh, yeah, went down the path. In, in for the kids, the ATO or proof of concepts a great way to get past yeah, some yeah. of the uh, <laughs> some well, of the yeah, man, I find it quite incredible that um you did that. I mean, because I've been toying with this idea for many many years, and but I just not. No, man, this, I go, I, you know, I don't know, like it's it's too hard, or I don't know anything about it's it. It's not easy. <laughs> no, it was, I'm sure it's not. And uh, then I go, um, how do I do it? Then I then I get distracted with other things, and I just forget about it. And I get you know every. I mean, I, every bloke in Australia, I would say, is either want to have a beer brand or a whiskey brand or something like that. Like yeah, most blokes all, I talk to, we've all made beer in the bathtub, mate. It's- yeah, well, and, and but it actually have a brand that everyone talks about. Like um, that, that, that that's like that's a cool thing. Of, I mean, unless you're a teetotaler or something, but that's a cool thing. Like I know heaps of guys have always said it. Um, but to do it's a bit different. Yeah, I think I think you've got to have a, an idea in your head though as to how far you're willing to go mm. and then what it looks like. I mean, I literally this started under my house in my garage. So the ATO actually bonded my garage, which meant I could do it. Uh, I then went about importing a still um, and looking at the. Well, the take me through some of the steps, please. So, like, well, yeah. So first, you research how to make it, which yep. is great, and you sort of come to the conclusion that you can make it in five liter lots, which literally produces nothing, um, or you can go and get yourself licensed, which is what I did. So after five liters, you need to have a license. Yes, yes, yeah. Well, five, it just doesn't make enough. It's actually not worth it. It's not a realistic volume. You, you've right. got to go bigger. Um, so yes, yeah, so then I went about getting licensed. So uh, lovely lady at the ATO I was dealing with. She was, she was absolutely sensational. I know a lot of people bag out government agencies, but the ATO was actually quite easy to deal with from from my perspective. Uh, and I went through the process with her. You know, so what do I need to do? What does this look like? We went through a business plan. What would that be? And it very much was under the guise of a, a proof of concept. Which it was. It was so. A, what, why are you doing with the lady from the ATO? Explain that to our listeners. Oh, that's who you call up. So it's under to the, make whiskey or well, under the excise division. So you have to be licensed, yeah, yeah. Uh, which means you wherever you're making it has to be bonded, uh, and bonded means that you don't pay the excise until it leaves that area. Yeah. So uh, we're talking basically, you have to collect tax for the government if you yes with yes. The, whatever alcohol you make over a certain amount. If yeah. you make over let's say say five, five liters, 
you have to, and if you at some stage if it leaves that area, the yeah. bonded area, which is under your house, yes. um, all of a sudden the government's entitled to tax. Yeah, essentially this, uh, distilling spirits is the only industry in Australia where you can lose money and still pay tax. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, right. so if you want to sell it for yeah, you don't have to sell it. It just at the moment it leaves there. There's a value attached to the the booze to the alcohol specifically. Yeah, yeah. and um, there's a tax associated with that. Yeah, excise, excise. It's, it's a tax. Yeah. It's an excise tax. It's like GST. Yes. So the government's going to actually put their paws into whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. Okay. So you, so you worked out from the ATO. There's a whole process. You know. You know. You're going to have to pay some excise duty. So they basically. Made sure that you you didn't go selling any outside of the joint. But how, how did you and Julie decide that you, you're going to do the you, you know you're going to make the whiskey? But how did you and Julie decide to get together? I mean, like, did you just work out you need someone to work out how to do the merchandising? Is that because it's, it's not your belly week? It's not your thing? It's not your strength? Well, what I mean, yeah, you got to look at people and say, well, you know, what is the experience and the background? I mean, Julie's experience and background in retail is quite extensive, uh, so it made sense to go with someone like that. And then also being family uh, sort of made it. Reasonably easy decision, and she was interested, strangely enough. Did you ever think to yourself, this is going to support us for the rest of our lives? I mean, was that your thought process? This is our business. We're going to become the next Johnny Walker. Um, or you just think, that's a little side hustle? No, no. The, the idea was always to make it commercial. So once the proof of concept works, so once I'd gone through the process of actually making a product and giving it to people in the industry who were turning around to me saying, you know what, this, this is good. This, okay, this, proof, this, that's a good point. Proof of concept. Yeah. What did you do for that? I mean, how did you prove the concept so you could make that confident decision that this could one day become a business? Like, so, what did well, you and Julie do? Oh, so, well, from the product, the product really came first and the whole brand is product-led in terms of that. So once I had made a product under the house and it was ready to go, I was able to give it to key people in the industry who I knew to say, taste this for me, take me through it, what are your thoughts, what's your feedback? And essentially they blind tasted it for me at different levels, which was great. The feedback was overwhelmingly positive. And it was, yes, this needs to go to market, this is going to work. Um, on the back of that, and you sort of get that confidence, and they're not people who wouldn't say it unless they meant it. Mm. Uh, and, and the flow on from that is we have been in competitions now, we have won awards and all that sort of good stuff. So it, it sort of proves that third parties do come back and say so yes. I just want to go back one step. In terms of the... Proof of concept. I mean, some people have different types of business, not necessarily this sort of business, but basically what you sort of, let's make a prototype of the product. But what I mean by that is what's the product in your case? What's it taste like? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and what's the alcohol level? And there probably have quite a few variables but around, around all that. So in terms of proof of concept, you went and found whiskey tasters or just mates who happen to work at the City Tats or blokes who love drinking whiskey? No, or, no, I mean, no. How, would you take to, <laughs> how, who did you take to? I mean, who, who do you – and how many people test this for proof of concept? Like, Oh, okay. So other distillers um, right. who, are, who I've known. So as, as I was going through the process, I've sort of grew that network in terms right. of, of, of who it was. And then I had people, yeah, who are whiskey experts uh, who I knew from um, previous roles who, who had been involved and guys who are – you know, in charge of other larger brands, when I say larger, like, you know, legitimate <laughs> large brands, uh, who were able to try it for me. Uh, probably the final uh, stepping stone was sitting on a panel that I'd clearly been the ring in for because someone had, you know, cancelled. I got called in because there was... Uh, the pity uh, call. Yeah. There was, it was full of um, uh, people from the whiskey industry. And I say whiskey industry, I mean actual, like, retailers and, and those sort of guys. All I had for them to taste at the time was new make, which is unaged whiskey at a rather high ABV because I'd been playing around with some stuff on the still. Uh, and the feedback from there was was huge. I had guys coming up to me asking if they could distribute the product. Now, the product wasn't ready, <laughs> clearly, uh, but they were- What did you call it? New? New make. New make. New make is whiskey before it goes into a barrel and is right, aged. Right, okay. So, yeah. but, it's, but it was your your taste profile? It was mine. Well, it was, yeah. I made it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's the profile- Yep. It, it is it, it, the profile, the taste profile of what you produce, was it what you thought you wanted to produce? Yes. Right. Yes, yeah, so 100%. Why, why did you, I, I'd like to know that. Like, did you say, I want to have a sweet whiskey? I want to have a uh, more, uh, um, you know, Scottish style or Japanese style or whatever. I mean, how did you go through that process of working out exactly what you wanted? What I want? Oh, well, okay. So I always knew I wanted a, a floral expression. So I wasn't really, I've never really been a huge fan of smoky peaty. Um, which drives oh, some people. Like woolen style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, some I don't mind, but it's just not my character. Yeah, yeah. It's like some people prefer different types of red wine. Yeah. I like Shiraz. That's that's what I like to drink. So that 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 was always something I wanted. In terms of developing and getting to the point where we had that particular flavor profile, I went through a huge amount of uh, process-driven sort of tests in 
using different types of grains. Um, and I went with what was commercially available to begin with because that's what you can get. Um, and probably almost got to a point uh, somewhere in there where I, I'd borderline given up because what was coming off the still wasn't tasting like what I thought it should taste like. Um, I then went about the process of saying, well, surely I can just buy from a farmer directly, um, which you can't. Well, you can maybe. It's just quite difficult. But then through that and through basically calling towns and different people in towns, I got put through to Stu at Voyager Malts. And Stu and Brad are two blokes. Which town? Uh, he, well, they live in Nienda. Which is in New South Wales. Riverina. The Riverina is enormous, yeah. right? Um, so Stu, I, I gave Stu the specs on what I wanted in terms of what I wanted the, the barley to look like, what I wanted its makeup to be uh, without getting too boring. And he's like, yep, he said, I've got one for you, uh, which is great. So the, the only problem was they had to deliver a tonne. So 40, 25 kilo bags, I'm under the house. And then uh, it, was, it was summer because I remember sweating a lot. Uh, <laughs> when it got delivered, I was about to leave for work and I had a suit on and the truck left it on the road. I live in suburbia and it's 25 metres from the front of my house to my garage. You carry a ton. Yeah. So I did that, then went and had a shower, got dressed and went back to work. And then I, then I went around the process of actually making it again. And even though the first slot I made wasn't necessarily right because, you know, I was quite excited about the fact I had all this grain um, and I was running through it. When it came off the still, actually tasted like I thought it should, uh, which was fantastic. And then it was about, okay, how do I then improve this? And then I went through more tests different yeasts, different temperature times, all that sort of good stuff that goes into making it until I got to the profile that I actually wanted. So it was a lot of trial and error. Just so I understand this, so when you say exactly the profile you wanted, I mean, so that you can make exactly the same profile every time because you don't want one bottle to taste different to the other bottle, do you actually write down every single little step in your Pretty recipe? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. highly systematized. Yeah, yeah. So it's very much process-driven mm. uh, and majority of what I do is process-driven. There's a huge creative side to, to doing this, which I really love. And, you know, in terms of, you know, we've got coffee vodka, we've got cacao vodka, we've got lemon drop vodka that tastes like the old lemon drop lollies. I don't know if you remember them. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, you know, we've got all these different stuff that we can do and then that allows us to then go and make some really cool cocktails and make up some new flavor profiles that way and mix them with some really exotic things, which is fantastic. But in terms of once you've figured out what it is you want to make, that process has to be really tight and it has to be repeatable. Because if it's not repeatable, why would anyone come back and buy it again? And that's that's the goal. In terms of the whiskey, the new make is always the same. What becomes different is the barrels. So every barrel would be unique. I mean, we, we, we are a true single malt, single barrel distillery. Uh, and that's what makes it interesting is that you come back. And we've, we've already had people, so we've released six barrels now. People come back and say, we can truly start to taste your profile in terms of what it is, even though every barrel tastes different. Because you might have a Pinot barrel might have a sherry barrel, a port barrel, or whatever it is. So that's always going to have a different profile to it, but you're still going to have that underlying OCD new mate coming through, which is what makes it so nice. Can you just explain to me that something I don't understand is I've never been able to get this. I mean, I, I can taste some whiskey. I say, that I like that one, and this one over here I might not like as much. Yeah. And I, a lot of times I can't actually put my finger on why I like it. Um, mm. And then you guys are going to say, well, I got undertones of this, I got something right there, and I got a bit of chocolate or a bit of something. <laughs> I mean, like, what are we looking Is there five things you're looking for? Is it smell, taste, uh, look? I mean, wh what do you? Yeah, it's it's trained. It's 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 trained. I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, it is. It's what you like to drink. And I make what I like to drink. And if other people like that, that's fantastic. Um, when you start to get into analyzing what it is you like, uh, it is easier to do it with a kit where you actually have a series of smells that you can smell and then smell the, the, the product that you're drinking or tasting. And you can start to work out, is that what I'm smelling? Is this what I'm getting? And then start to pull off the key things that you like. So you mean there's a kit that sort of maybe has, I don't know, um, earth's, earthy sort of smell or yeah. something, or dirt or something. You smell that, then you go back to, then you go to your the yeah. bit of whiskey and you say, can I smell it in? Oh, there, I got that. Yeah, 100%. And then I might, there might be four or five other sort of scents that I get as, yeah. that I can, okay, that, oh, that's how it works. So I often wonder, that's the thing. How the hell do these guys or girls do this shit? Like uh, they say, you know, overtones and undertones and this, and they've got about six different, I can smell mushrooms and I can smell uh, blah, blah, limestone, <laughs> I don't know. And it's like, it's crazy. And uh, they, uh, they, they, that's how they do it. There's a little process. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very much a learnt skill. Right. I mean, there are some people who are born innately and they're able to do it. Um, but no, it is more of a learnt thing. I mean, with our tasting notes, I actually get a third party to do it for us who's an expert. Right. Um, because to be honest, it's it's like when you read your own writing. 
it's almost hard to pick up your own mistakes sometimes. So yeah. when you get someone who's outside, it's easier for them to come in and be critical about what you've done than for you to do it yourself. Thankfully, they always say nice things, which is really cool. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's very much about learning how to identify what it is. I mean, a lot of people come into the distillery to drink whiskey and they leave with a bottle of vodka as well. And often the feedback is they say, well, yeah, I like it, but I don't know why. You know, something about it. And it's not, you know, I don't think it's always about being able to identify, you know, the key, you know, vanilla, smooth, creamy undertones that are in there. I think it's just a case of if you really enjoy it, then that's fantastic. Then that's the product for you. Mm. Okay, I'm, I'm back here with Julianne Edward from OCD whiskeys and vodkas in front of me. That's all that matters to me. And, uh, and we've been talking about sort of their background and sort of we touched on the merchandising experience that Julie has and also the sort of the obsession, by the way, with uh, whiskey and then vodka that Edward has and how that sort of transpired into a, a product, an award-winning product. I, mean, I guess I should ask you, what awards, tell me about the awards. What, I mean, that must have been a pretty cool thing to get an award for a start. Yeah, no, it was, it was amazing. We went in the Australian International Spirits Competition, uh, which was held late last year, so before COVID. Uh, and we got um, two gold and four silver. So the pure vodka got a gold. The lemon drop, which is a botanical vodka, got a gold. Uh, 23, which is as close to we get as a gin. Still a vodka, uh, got a silver. And then Julie put two of the uh, two of the whiskies in, even though there was none left to sell anyway. <laughs> and they both got silvers as well, which was absolutely brilliant. Uh, we're very, very proud of that. So, why, why is it Australian... Stillers can make great gins, great vodkas, great whiskies. I mean, what, what's the deal there? I mean, or is it? I mean, I don't know. Like, how come all of a sudden we're eclipsing the Scot, the Scottish, and the Japanese, and everyone else around the world? Uh, I don't know. We're eclipsing them in in certain areas. I think in terms of, I mean, what we make with the vodka, and there are some guys that do it as well. We, we're using Australian product, uh, and you're using Australian grain. I mean, you know, the Riverina is the food bowl of food food bowl of Australia, and because it produces, you know, some of the most amazing things that in the world, as far as I'm concerned. So, so getting a barley directly from there means that we're starting with what is an amazing product to begin with. You know, we're not starting with something that's low end and cheap and trying to make mm. something really high end and glitzy out of it. We are starting with, you know, what I consider one of the most premium barley. The barley's the for the whiskey, though, isn't it? The barley's for all of it. For, 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 but, so, so I always thought vodka was made out of potatoes or something. Well, you can make so you can make vodka right. out of any pretty much anything that ferments. Um, whiskey must be grain based as, as as it's defined. So is it always barley though? Or, or? No, you can do uh, wheat, rye, wheat, right? You know, there's and then you can get into other specifications within that as well. Uh, so no, the vodka is all a single malt vodka, uh, and it all comes from the same barley, which is Latrobe. So we, we're starting with a really premium product. And part of the, I think part of the journey and, you know, the passion behind the product is to be about Australian was partly driven by the fact that as the production uh, occurred and the tests went through and all, all that sort of good stuff was that we realized that the best product does come from here. So, you know, we should hero where it is coming from. And the people who we engage with are genuinely nice people who are genuinely trying to help other people in the industry. I mean... You know, they're making sure that everyone's getting paid the the right mm. rate for their product. I mean, even the um, the, the botanical vodkas we use uh, Anthea T, um, and Anthea is an, she's an amazing woman. She she does great stuff, and again, she's supporting Australian businesses by driving as much as she can uh, high end Australian botanicals. Uh, the coffee and the cacao we get is from, it actually lemon or lemon myrtle. It lemon myrtle. Lemon myrtle. Lemon myrtle has significantly more yeah, yeah. Um, citric yep. acid. So. The, the, the coffee and the cacao we get from Morgan's Coffee and Zococo Chocolate and Dean and Michelle, the husband and wife team, um, you know, they go to the – I mean, obviously, you can get some coffee and cacao in Australia, but not much. Uh, but they go to these crazy places. So, you know, they're in the Solomon Islands. They're in Papua New Guinea. They're, they're, they're going there. They're making sure these people are getting paid fair trade. Mm-hmm. They're making sure they're doing it the right way, that it is all sun-dried and they're not using smoke and all this sort of thing. So they, they have a genuine passion about making sure that these people are producing the right way and they're being looked after. And that – that comes through to the product. I think if you try and skip that and sort of do something a little bit cheap or a little bit dodge on the side and think, oh, yeah, no one will notice, you will notice at the end and you'll it will notice. come through and it will diminish the work that goes in. There's around the world people saying, look, they're really good. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. High-quality product is going into these end products, and people are starting to recognize that Australia can produce great whiskies and vodkas. No, I definitely think they are. I mean, in terms of globally, how are people looking at Australian product now? Well, I think they are starting to recognize that it is really good quality. The, the issue will always be, though, just the sheer volume that we produce isn't matching what can go out there. And I don't think that uh, at this point, Autocraft Distilling is necessarily looking to you know, supply the entirety of Europe and the States with no. vodka. I mean, the, the, the amount that is required to export is huge. Yeah. Um, you know, definitely we do want to export. That is part of the goal. Uh, and we will do that in the next iteration of the business when, we, when we're able to grow it and make it larger. But at this point in time, really, it's about growing it within Australia and supporting the Australian businesses that, that we are looking at. And I think especially too, I mean, COVID um, has been a problem, uh, as it has for everyone, but it has highlighted that, you know, there is a need for Australians to support Australian businesses and make sure that businesses that are supporting other Australian businesses are the ones that you back. I mean, you've got a choice when you go to the store. You've got a choice when you're a retailer 100%. To, to what you buy, you know. And we get people coming in, they look at it, they have a taste, and they're like, oh, actually, this is really good. I mean, we're getting great stories back now from bars that are starting to trade again slowly um, that, you know, there are people who come in and they only drink our vodka. And, I mean, that that's amazing, you know. So good Australian product will, will overcome, you know, issues that are out there. Yes, it is more expensive to make product locally. Um, you know, I could import, literally I could import spirit cheaper than it cost me to make it. Yeah. But that's not the essence of the business. The DNA in the business is about supporting Australians and making the best product we can from that. And that's the goal. And that, and that comes right through the product. I mean, even to the to the packaging. I mean, the the, the wax on the top of the bottle, uh, which is kind of an iconic thing that we do and we talked about earlier, comes from a company down in Victoria. It's a family-owned business. You know, so that's really cool that, that even – when we were hand wax dipping them, which is awesome fun, not really. Tastes forever. Oh, it's painfully slow. It was a good idea to have. Now we do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> At some stage we'll hire some uni students who need some money to so wax dip bottles because <laughs> well over we're it. Over it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's good that, you know, yeah, when I would call up, you know, I'm calling up just a, you know, a local Australian number to, to order it and I know that it's coming from them. The screen printing comes from a company in South Australia. They're screen printing the bottles for us. I was going to ask you that um, the bottles, so I mean the shape of the bottle, uh, where did that come from? Well, it's well, it's it, bottles it, are from France. Yeah, but from, the shape. I mean, why did you choose this shape? So there was a selection of of um, shapes and styles that we were able to look at and choose from, and. With the volume that we want to make as well, there was only certain things we could do. Edward also wanted the bottle to have a certain hand feel. That's what I mean. Like, yeah. Why, yeah. why? With why the that? vodka and the whiskey, we wanted it to be more unisex. We didn't want it to be too feminine, too masculine. It's a brother and sister business. We both wanted to be able to hold the bottles. And like you were saying earlier, it's about the texture of the experience and everything as well. Um, and Edward, who knows spirits inside out, wanted a particular quality of glass. <laughs> because he's the drinker, um, wanted a particular quality of glass as well to hold the spirit. So yep. we sort of narrowed down the choice and then we agreed on the shapes together. Right. So you agreed on the shapes together, um, and but also the quality of the glass yeah, it's is quite, because it's quite a reasonably heavy, it feels like it's thick glass. Is that right? Yeah. 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 It's got, I mean, it's got to be flint glass for spirit. It's just, it's a thing that it is. But yeah, definitely. I mean, look, the heavy base on it, it, it really was a, a case of making sure that you know, if a, if a guy held it, it wasn't going to feel too small or too dainty as it were. Um, but in the same time, you know, if it was in a, you know, a, a lady's hand, that it didn't feel like it was this overwhelmingly large, you know, audacious bottle that mm. was like, it was just uncomfortable to mm. be pouring. 
And I, and I think we found a good sort of mid for that. I think the other part, and you can't see the top of the moment because they're, they're, they're waxed up. The, the court closure was really important too because to me, there, there should be a ceremony in opening something. It's, you know, I mean, if you've got a twist cap, I know they're convenient and yeah, they're cheaper and they're quicker to do and all that sort of stuff. But when you're paying $85 for a bottle of vodka, I want to know that some care has gone into how that got, thing got packaged, not that it went through a machine that just spun it on. And it also sort of gives that lovely noise when you twist it because it's got that sort of squeaky noise and it pops as it comes <laughs> out, right? And that's kind of cool. And you know you're opening something special. You know, it's, it's almost taking the champagne idea of popping the cork mm. in, into, uh, into a spirit. A ceremonial. Really cool. Yeah. It is exactly right. Yeah. It's a, yeah. And it should be every time you open it, it should be a ceremony. So when you take the cork out, what do you what do you, you just put that cork back? In? Yeah, just yeah. put it back in. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. A bottle of wine. Yeah, it's yeah, a reconstituted like a cork. Yeah. It does a pure. Um, it, it does a it does perfect, a, perfect seal. It's yeah, and in terms of the, I'm, I'm only looking at the vodkas. You ran out of whiskey, but the, in terms of um, the vodkas, um, and I, I guess the same applies to the whiskey. All the Australianization of it, I mean, I think is incredibly important, particularly during mm-hmm. COVID. Um, this is the sort of stuff that the Prime Minister has been talking about and uh, for a long time now, well, at least the last six months, that we should be, let's call it self-sufficient. I mean, mm. we, we should become, you as a manufacturer of yep. something, should become less reliable on what's going on overseas and in particular in places like China because, you know, we could have issues going forward. Um, and COVID has, has made us acutely aware of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, what of this, what is imported? I mean, the bottle is imported, but what, what, what else is imported? So, well, the bottle is imported and the cork is imported because we just, we just don't produce enough cork in Australia. Yeah. That's, that's fine. So the cork comes out of Spain. Um, the ribbon, I think. The ribbon's imported. So, but what we're doing with the packaging now is because most packaging is made in China. And in fact, most Australian companies. Packaging, you mean, mean boxes? Boxes yep. and, and things like that. And even when you work with Australian manufacturers, a lot of them then send the orders over to China to be made. It's very rare to find people yeah. in Australia that, that can make packaging. We're actually working with a group at the moment to try and make the boxes locally. And they're also going to cost up, you know, the other things that we have in, in the packaging, the tissue paper and the ribbons and those sorts of things but what about as well. The, but just generally, the, I mean, let, let me just look at this bottle. I mean, apart from the bottle, let's take the packaging aside. Let's look at the bottle. Um, the wax is from Victoria. The wax, the wax is from, yeah, the wax is yeah. Australian. It comes down from Victoria. Yeah, great. The cork is from Spain. Yep. The bottle is from, from France, but um, you, you, we literally just don't have this yeah. glass being made in Australia. I yeah. mean, I actually, when I started the business, it's been that long since I looked at bottles. I remember going to the CSIRO as a kid and going, yeah, of course we make glass in Australia. We thought we could get them um, made. So <laughs> when I was clearly told, no, we don't, I was like, oh, okay. So we, so we went with we went with Saver Glass. They produce ethically and, and tick all the right boxes. Well, that, that's important too, that because the, the promise is saying we should be less reliant on China. So ordinarily, yep. I mean, when when I was in the beer business many years ago, we see a lot of our beer actually made in China. Yeah. And bottled. Everything was yeah. done. Everything right. was done in China, China yeah. particularly one of our brands. We had like six brands. And uh, but that would be a problem today because you, you would have issues around that. Um, yeah. You need what, what the Prime Minister is, is to spread ourselves around the world. Yeah. So mm. France is a good idea. So in terms of what about the um, emboss, embossing here? Like so the, the, the screen printing is done down in South Australia. Screen printing means the, the writing yes. on the bottom. Yes. Yep. Yep. Down in South Australia? Yeah. Yep. 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 The family, and, another family business. And, the, the, and some of these have got, this one's got embossed uh, stuff and like carved into the glass. So the, Yeah, so the etching we do in-house. Yep. So we actually have a laser etcher at the distillery. Uh, and we can personalize, as we have for yourself, yep. um, personalized bottles as well as we use it because we're able to create short runs and put different names on it. It's really cool. And then in terms of what's inside the bottle, um, the, 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 the grain is local. Yep, yep. the barley is from Australia. What else is there? Um, so, well, obviously the water's water. local. <laughs> yeah, the water's yeah. local. Um, so in the, in the lemon drop, because we use Anthea's tea, yep. um, all of the botanicals in that actually come from Australia. Uh, in the 23, with the exception of the uh, juniper. juniper, it all comes from Australia just because juniper is not readily available in Australia. Uh, there are some that grow, but it, again, it's not huge. Juniper is like for a gin. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But the other botanicals are from Australia. Um, the coffee, obviously, not a huge amount of coffee, but we do buy it obviously through Morgan's Coffee and they go and make sure. But this is, you know, Papua New Guinea, um, Solomon Islands, that sort of Good places. Stuff, yeah. And then the cacao. The cacao is actually uh, exclusive from Solomon Islands. It's um, it's actually called Guadalcanal, which I don't know why. It's just really nice, tastes good. So, right. But so. I think the important thing for us with everything that's in the bottle and around the bottle is that it's sustainable and traceable, and it's mm. all fair trade. 
Yeah, so, so you've got, it's got provenance. Yeah, so you, everything yeah. has provenance. All the factories, even the, the factories that we do use for China um, for packaging have all CEDEX approvals. So we know for a fact that everything and everyone is, as you say, with provenance, but also fair trade. So there, therefore, therein lies your, part of your story. Yeah. So can you now tell me, how do you tell the story? Uh, and what, what means or mediums are you using to tell the story? So we have our website. Mm-hmm. And there's quite a bit of our the brand in our story, Ottercraft Distilling, ocdistilling.com. Um, so the story's on there, both about our backgrounds, sort of how we formed the business, but also the story of the brand and, and what's important in, in the business and our social platform as well. So we're on Instagram and Facebook. As, as OC Distilling. OC Distilling. Yep. And we like to reference on there the product, the story, calling out the, you know, the family friends that we know who all support our business as well. We, and they're all our suppliers. We like to reference all of that through through our social platform as well. You know, we only launched officially as a brand, although we've been working on the business for quite some time, setting it all up. We only launched eight months before COVID hit. So we were really in that time of getting our story out there, getting our brand out there, trying to build our social media platform and, you know, talk about everything that we've been chatting about today that's so important to us. That's mad. So you're only eight months before COVID started, then COVID hit. And as I understand it, you actually put the business on, well, you, you sort of slowed up the business and you went out and produced your own hand sanitizer. Well, our, yeah. our business actually <laughs> as a yeah. stopped overnight. Yeah, it, it, was, did, um, yeah, it didn't slow, it ended. It was right. A, well, so what happened? Well, we, upsetting. yeah, so we had basically, with the exception of, I think, uh, one or two places, we were, we were exclusively selling through on-premise. Uh, so to start the brand and get the brand out there, we went to on-premise, so restaurants, bars, clubs, that sort of thing. Uh, and it had been accepted really well. And it accepted really well in the places we went to. I mean, Key, Benelong, Obar, Doss House, Baxter's, you know, more more your places you're going for your better product. Um, they had tried the product and took it immediately, which was amazing. It was fantastic. And it was almost, uh, you know, makes you confident that you're on the right path because these are places who... If your product's no good, they're, they're not going to be nice to you. They're going to go, look, we're just not interested. It's too hard for us. Um, so they had taken it and we were, through a, a connection we had, um, had started to set up all these meetings with bottle shops, which was looking really positive. We had about 20 or 30 meetings 20, set up. We had 26 meetings and it was, set up. Um, it was great. It was like, this is, we are absolutely heading in the right direction. We were stoked. Uh, and then literally the week that COVID started to kick in, we had emails, messages and text messages going, yeah, we're not doing any meetings. We're not face-to-face. One of the bottle shops that we'd been into, which we're now back in again, thankfully, called them up and said, look, you know, how are we going? And they said, yeah, yeah, we sold out. We said, great, we'll order some more product. Nah, we're just going to see how it goes. I'm like, well, I know how it's going. You've sold the product, so <laughs> let's get some more in. But fair call, obviously. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so they were pulling back um, and essentially – mainstream products were selling. I mean, people were going to start to drink at home. They weren't looking to impress. Um, people were probably more interested in just getting a bit of a buzz than they were about worrying about the uh, subtle tones and creaminess of the product, uh, which was fine. But, yeah, it, it pretty much just brought us to a grinding halt. So I think on the Monday I was like, yeah, we're not doing hand sanitizer. And by the Friday I had researched the living crap but out wh- of it. Why, why, <laughs> but why hand sanitizer? Why did you, is it because it got alcohol in it? Yeah, essentially. I mean, it's something that we can measure. Uh, and it's something right. that we can make. We went down the path of making the WHO, so the World Health Organization standard uh, product, because it meant that we were making a product that still stood to, I guess, some of the the, the, the ethics of the brand. Um, you know, we could make a really high quality product. And then when we had a look at the pricing of the product, we approached it very differently to the vodka and the whiskey. I mean, the vodka and the whiskey is a luxury product. It's it's very much around experiencing the best that Australia has to offer and the best thing that I can produce. Uh, in terms of the hand sanitizer, it was about, you know, it became a need overnight um, and a broader need. I mean, my kids have always had hand sanitizer hanging off their bag. So, you know, when other kids started stealing it, it was like, oh, okay, it's a bit odd. So we, we looked at it differently and we didn't uh, gouge in terms of our pricing. We sort of went much lower um, and that sort of meant that we were able to hook in some corporate orders, which was lovely, and go down that path. So it's funny, you know. I love the name for a hand sanitizer. Yeah, that would be because like <laughs> worked out well. Yeah, I mean, like like I am a bit OCD with everything I do, but uh, what's interesting is um, smells good. It's actually, smells like booze. Yeah, well, yeah, it, and it tends to go you didn't fairly sort quickly. Of put any of your vodka in this, did you? No, like no, 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 absolutely but it, not. But it, it's, it smells good. It's the name OCD is great. I mean, I, I got the otter on top of it, but like um, OCD, 
It's such a good name for hand sanitizer. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, sort of especially during well. this period, you know, OCD. And I think actually OCD for booze is good too. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, because I'm OCD about my, my, my whiskey and, well, and it's got to be a certain way. Otherwise, I won't drink it. Yeah, I mean, earlier we talked about process. When you come to the distillery, um, when you come in and you can see how we make it, we, it is very driven. Everything happens the same every single time. Uh, there isn't any room for for changes. It's it's quite specific as to how it's done. Once you've nailed it, you need to do it. It's funny, you know, again. you should say, because I often talk about, I mean, I, I used to do lots of talks and, uh, of course, they all stopped and COVID started too. But one of the things I used to talk about is I used to say, it's okay to be obsessed with your business, mm. obsessed mm. in what you do. I mean, it, it's not good to have it in a sense of being a medical condition, <laughs> but um, but you must be obsessive mm. in your business. Yeah. And I think that's I, – I, as soon as I saw the name yeah. OCD, I went, wow, I love that name, OCD. <laughs> you know, it's something I'll remember. You know, I will remember yeah. that OCD because especially being sort of launched during this weird period, <laughs> oh. it sort of goes with COVID. It's, might might work in our favour. I, I think 100% it I does. So. I really do. I really I do think so. it's – I think it's the – Looking at the branding, I think it's the one of the best names coming out of a Aussie brand that I can think of because it's very Thank Australian. You. It's a bit like um, what uh, Conor McGregor's done with his brand, you know, his whiskey brand. Oh yeah, proper twelve. Yeah, proper twelve. Proper twelve. Proper, yeah. You know, you can see a, an Irishman sort of saying proper twelve. You know? <laughs> um, but an OCD, I can see an Aussie saying OCD. I mean, yeah. it's 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 a good name. It's a really good name. Yeah. Thank you. Thank I you. love it. I, I actually love the name OCD. Well, you know what to order next time you're out then. So. <laughs> oh, I, but the interesting thing is I won't forget it. Yeah. Because it's not something I'm likely to forget. OCD is easy for me to, easy for me to remember. Um, but I want to go back to you, Julie, like uh, the, the platform. So do you use Facebook, Instagram? What are you using? Instagram's obviously a perfect one for the colors, et cetera. But how, how are you using the various platforms? So we're using them to, we're using them in a couple of ways. Um, for us, I think the, they've been really critical in letting people know that we're still here. We've actually had the business now more through COVID than before almost, you know, and it's, and a lot of the people that we were selling into and that we'd connected with and everything else closed. And so for us, not just for the venues, but for customers and letting people know that we're here, we've, we've used it in a couple of ways, particularly Instagram and, and Facebook. So for us, it's been an incredible connection tool as well, just to be able to say to people, this is important to us. This is why you should be remembering us. You know, this is what we're doing now. The hand sanitizer piece in particular as well. You know, a lot of people went out to do that, which was fantastic. And there was a government call to do it as well. And for us then it's about, well, how do we let people know what we're doing that is still aligned to our brand, as Edward was saying. You know, even from the machinery perspective that you need to make hand sanitizer, that you bought, Edward bought all the machinery that's Australian made, Australian engineered, all of those sorts of things. Again, always trying to keep it back to what's important to us. So we're really using those platforms to let people know that that's what we're doing. Because if you don't go to a venue and venues are only very slowly opening, you don't see our brand. The bottle shops close. I mean, we, we were only in two or three bottle shops as COVID hit. So we had no access. We're now slowly going back into bottle shops, which we are so excited about. What about just about, just about to go straight, you telling everyone about your product, just go straight to your website and buy that. Yeah, you can absolutely buy off the website. No, you can, but I, I think it's... You don't want to do that or you prefer... No, 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 no. Oh, no, we oh, do. We sell online. Look, I mean, clearly, if people buy directly from yeah, you, it's uh, far more advantageous. Um, but, it, you know, again, it's about supporting others as well. So, mm. you know, to be in retail... I mean, look, if we could sell everything that we produce online, that would be good. But I still think that, you know, from the way the brand sits, mm. it's better to have it in retail stores and... You know, at this point in time, very You're much. You're talking about bottlers. But yeah, yeah. yeah. Very, it's very good much awareness shops. and well, confidence yeah. and, and things as well. Yeah, they're, they're highly educated bottle shops. But, yeah. you know, <laughs> but it, you know, it, it's great to have it. I mean, we're in Corkscrew Cellars now, um, which essentially is a group of family-owned bottle shops, and they've come into the distillery and they've done the tour and the tasting, and they've been great. They're really supportive guys. Um, they're just, you know, looking to, to help out, and they mm. buy into the story and they get it. You know, they, they really like it. I mean, Camping Out Cellars has taken us on and we're in... Kemenies. Kemenies, Paddington Fine Wine Groups. If you drive past their windows, September, October, November, you'll actually see us in the window. Um, but again, yeah, they're buying into it, the, the fact that it is Australian and they like it and they want to be able to talk about it. And mm. I think to an extent, it's about sharing the love, you know, around, not just about trying to hog it yourself. How do you work this out? So let's say you go to 20 different retail outlets and they all say, yeah, we want to sell it. 
Yep. And then you've got a little bit going online and you're quite successful and um, then all of a sudden someone says, well, you want uh, I don't know, 100 bottles. Yep. Someone else says, I want 100 bottles. And all of a sudden you've got 500 requests and then people online want another 500 bottles. You've got to uh, sell your house and move out and go and buy a buy a big block of land and start to build a a, a proper deal. I mean, is that, well, we is are. That that's we actually what we're looking at doing yeah. now. So we're right. looking at growing the business. So at the moment, we run a seventy litre still and a four hundred litre pot still. Which means what? Um, I mean, so in terms of capacity, it means that we can fill about a hundred about a hundred litre cask a week uh, and produce some vodka. Um, the goal is to fill a hundred litre cask a day uh, and produce about a pallet of vodka a day in terms of capacity, uh, and that means that yep. Exactly. When people call up and start start pushing for that demand, we can do that, and that and that's where we want to go to. We can do that without putting any uh, question to the quality of the product, without worrying about how much grain we have and all mm. that sort of stuff. So we've very much got to scale to know how much grain is available, how much will be produced every year, and then how much product we can produce. And really, when we get to a point where it's bigger than that, it's not about necessarily getting bigger, but about duplicating, replicate it, and saying, "Well, okay, let's get another set of stills." And maybe in that other set of stills, we're using the same grain or maybe if we've maxed that out at that stage, we then start the process again and looking for a new Australian grain that we actually use and create another line of product. But at no point do we sacrifice the quality of the product or the provenance or where it comes from or what it's about to make more. And we've spoken to all of our suppliers as well about our scale to grow plans so that they know that this is our goal. Hopefully we'll still get there and that, you know, they're a part of that as well. So those conversations we've, we've had and we know that this has been a pause for us this time, but, you know, for us it's been, it's been it was a full stop, but on the positive side we'll say it's a long pause. And so it's about, you know, making sure that they're on board with us for our next plan of growth and how that's going to occur and that they know that they're a part of that with us as so well. So what does scale mean then? I mean, scale, some people think scale means global you know, domination. Whatever. But uh, like everybody's <laughs> buying my stuff around the world. But what, what does scale I, mean? I think ultimately yeah, you want to be available globally, available in places that support and understand the ethics of the business that you're in. Uh, and providing that those businesses are aligned with what we are, then yeah, we want to be involved with them. Yeah. Um, where they're not aligned, then we're probably not really interested in being involved with them. And then the other thing you risk is you, you risk your brand integrity. So even if the, your product holds all the ethics that you hold dear, uh, is aligned with a store that doesn't, then people are going to say, well, maybe they're not as, you know, true blue as you thought they were. Mm. Maybe they're, you know, taking the cheap road or doing whatever else. So we don't want, we don't want to risk that. So what, what is it, I mean, are, we, are you talking about a business that can, you know, when you do scale it up, in other words, I mean, I see you're going on a, you're doing a, a fundraising round now or you're going, thinking about raising money to put in back into the business. I presume yep. this is to, this is to achieve some level of scale that yep. is to put more distilleries or, Change your premises, move premises, or something along those lines. Is that everything? What, what's what's the money raised for? Uh, yeah, well, the money raised is, is to grow the distillery. So to get more equipment, um, to get at home lot. or some other place. No, no, to, no. We'll still be in the inner west yep. where we are. Um, we like that hipster inner west, groovy, arty, creative feel, uh, and we do. We generally do, but it's yeah to stay in that area. But we need a bigger still. We need bigger facilities uh, to run with, and we need more stuff. So, I mean, in terms of barrels, we need more barrels and then it means we need more grain to fill those barrels uh, and to grow the business that way. It would also be lovely to have a little bar where we can show off our own stuff as well, um, which would be really good because the, the great thing about that is it, it lets other people come in and see what you can do yeah. and then they're going to want to replicate what you're doing and then take your product mm. and go and do it in their own places. So it, it's partly for public access, but then also the other part is for, for training, you know, the, the bars and staff that you are. I mean, at the moment we do it, but, you know, when you come out, you can see we're very small. It's quite tight. It would be nice to do it in a, in a somewhat larger environment. Is there someone in the world or someone in Australia that is a, a really good proxy to where you'd like to be in the next, say, three years? I mean, is there a, a whiskey or vodka or gin-making organisation that um, is a good proxy for where you want to be? Because, I mean, if you're raising money, you're obviously going around telling people, that's the question everyone's going to yeah, say. Yeah, no, we're going to be in five years' time. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, like you say, say I invested, I would say, I'm not interested. I mean, I love all your ideas, but I'm not wedded to that stuff, okay? I'm interested in how am I going to get, if I put $1,000 in there, how am I going to get $10,000? Yeah. I want 10, I want a 10 timer. Okay, 10 bagger. That's what everybody's after, okay? Oh. So therefore you need to convince me what you're going to do in five years' time. So where do you see yourselves as a... In, in terms regard? of a comparison? Yeah. Is there something you, you put out there? 
more awards? What is it? Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely yeah. for more awards. I think, you know, as the world opens up literally again, we'll definitely be going in, yep. in for more awards and we're, you know, we we believe we're a brand that can be created locally and can really sit amongst the world's best spirits internationally. I think if you're asking about a volume perspective, we're very clear on the numbers of that over the next couple of years and the production capacity that we can get to. So if you're trying to raise money now, yeah. I mean, I don't know, you may have, you may have encountered this. Um, do you get people say to you, oh, well, that's great, but, you know, COVID's going to cause you a problem with, with bars and restaurants and stuff like that. Do they, does that then push you down the, the online route and sort of say, well, look, yeah, okay, well, if we're going to get um, killed off because bars and restaurants in Victoria aren't going to be open to sell our product, we're going to market it so bloody hard, people are going to want to buy it online. Uh, yes and no. I mean, look, on-premise on has never really been a volume driver for most businesses. It really is more about getting, uh, getting your brand out there in terms of, of branding so people see it. Bartenders like to talk about it. Um, they tend to be more educated about products and know it so – you know, it's like, oh, he's Autocraft distilling, you know, pure vodka, da, da da and they can give a spiel about it and then people go, oh, that's right. And then when they go to the local bottle shop, they see it. So it's bottle, but, so, but, but, but bottle, it's to bottle drive people to the bottle shop. That's correct. Yes. So bottle shops tend to be more where the volume comes from. And bottle shops are an essential service. They, 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 yes. they stay they open. They are in Yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> totally. <laughs> no, no, but it, but it makes sense. <laughs> no, no. Okay, so that's, your, that's, that's the answer to your question, though, yes. or yeah. to my question. So, mm. um, yeah, um, bottle shops are an essential service. So our game is to get into the bottle shops. Where we're going to market into the bottle shops is by doing it at the bar level yep. and all your various other out yeah. outlets. Yeah. I mean, and, the, and the other part too, I mean, yes, online is great and people buying directly from us and anyone who wants to buy directly from us, we absolutely love you. But it is easier to sell, you know, uh, 10 cases to a bottle shop than it is 60 bottles to yeah, 60 yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it makes sense too. In, in terms of that. So from a time perspective, I mean, at the moment, the business is me and Julie. So that's not a lot of resource, you know, when you sort of outside of, you know, stuff Julie's doing and I'm, I'm literally the guy who makes it all. Um, time frame becomes less and less and less. So it, it is more economical to sell to, to those places uh, and get them on board with your product and have them championing you than it is to take every single sale individually as it comes. Uh, I mean, in saying that, you'll take, especially the early stage of the business, you'll take anything you can totally. get. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been um, down that track myself. So everything. how much money are you trying to raise? Between one and two million. Uh, let's say two million bucks. And uh, if someone's listening and they're interested in um, looking at it, I mean, like, what, did, what are the, what, in what amounts? So 50,000 licks or 100,000? What are we talking about? I think we'd rather have uh, three or maybe four investors as a top. Right, okay. Uh, we're not looking at taking a lot of small and investors. And if they wanted to talk to you, they just go to, go to your website and contact you. Yeah, we'll just give Julie's mobile now. Yeah. <laughs> But they go straight to your website. Yes. Yeah, 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 okay. So if anyone's listening, they're interested in this because you know it's a, one of the things that COVID has proven is that booze is a goer. Yeah, it just yeah. it is. And uh, people are saying, well, what can I do that's different? Because another thing COVID has proven is what can I do that's different in my life? How can I uh, gloss my life up a little bit? Yeah. And one thing people are looking for, I think, is uh, different brands trying different things. And therefore, and maybe if you know some people got enough money is uh, to invest in different things as well. So I, you know, I just think it's probably a good. I mean, one of the good things come out of COVID, and apart from the fact that you learn how to pivot and you produce your own hand sanitizers, is that I think that people are, are going to be looking for exotic alcohol, not not just in, not in terms of beer and wine, but try different things mm. as a consumer. But I think also investors looking for the same sort of thing. So I always give you an opportunity, everyone an opportunity, to ask me a question. So have you got one for me? We actually, I actually had a question for you about investment, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and the question which we've sort of chatted a little bit about now. But I guess. Going out to invest and just being a, a small Go out business. to investors, going to investors. Yes, yeah. going out to investors. It's been interesting for us just hearing feedback about how you value a business and how you go around asking for investment now. And, you know, despite the vast experience that Edward and I have, we're still hearing so many different things and there's so many different interpretations around it. So I guess I would love to, we would love to know your advice around going and speaking to investors now and just how you value a business because effectively you would look at us as a startup but almost going into round two or three, we're self-funded at the moment so there's no other investment. So, so generally speaking, you wouldn't be considered 
round one or two, um, you, you would be considered what you put in as a seed investment. Yeah. This is round one. Yeah. So that's, that's the, you've got to get the language right. Yeah. That's pretty important. You've got to, you've got to get a list of people who are likely investors in these things. And yep. one or two million is not a lot, mm. um, to be frank with So your standard v- venture capitalist probably wouldn't invest because it's not enough money. No, totally. Um, so you're got to look for high net wealth people. So mm. for me, I think it's better to have someone who has access to high net wealth people. Yeah. You, you know, I think it's better to, you to remove yourself from that process altogether. And uh, you have to pay someone a fee, usually between 6 and 10%. They build your information memorandum. They double-check it, fact-check it. That's their marketing tool with your inputs, of course, and approvals and consents. But it's their marketing tool which they send to their client base. That's the way I would do it because it's not a lot of money to raise. Mm. It sounds ridiculous, but it's not a lot of money to no, raise. Agree. Yeah. And uh, And then you've got to th- decide, as you say, you want, you'd rather have um, mm. three or four because yeah. you don't have to be dealing with 100 people. But to be frank with you, um, because it's low amount, a lower amount you're raising, you generally speaking, you have to lower the, the threshold. Because if let's say I'm investing half a million in something, I want to be one of ten and a half million people. I, I don't want to be the, the guy with two or three others, because uh, I get nervous about that. Mm. I would say, uh, but if if you said, look, we'll take fifty thousand dollar lots, then I would feel more comfortable because I'm saying, well, I'm in there with ten other people or twenty other people. Yeah. Mm. That's okay. just generally yeah. the way it works. Yeah. I know you'd rather not have too many people to deal with. Yeah. It's a punish. I get it. But that's the game you're in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. this marketplace, you will get probably more likely getting fifty or $100,000 licks than you will be getting half million dollar licks because the half million dollar thinkers, yeah. generally speaking, don't want to take the risk with two or three others. Yeah. Okay. Generally speaking, those people with that money think, I don't, I don't have time to spend on this. I will have a punt on this because I believe in the fundamentals. Hmm. I believe in alcohol. I believe in, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. The story, I like, I like I, they'll read the story. But in terms of doing their due diligence on, you know, your P&L and all the forecasts yeah. and everything you produce and the valuations, they want one other person who's done that, that business, yeah. that work, and they'll rely on that individual. Okay. So you just need one person to come to the well. Yeah. One good person to come to the world who others will fall, will rely upon. Yeah. Then everybody else will follow. Yeah. Okay. And and I I, I will say this to you too. Um, you've got to put in the front of people's mind. There's a possibility that there will be a sale at five years. It, you know, I, you might have a whole lot of uh, views on this. And you don't never want to sell it. Oh. Never say I don't want to sell it. No. Don't say you don't have to say oh, I will sell it. I'm more, we're, I think we're both more aware of the commercial realities yeah, that yeah. happen within a business. I mean. Uh, been involved in businesses that have been taken over and lived lived it, uh, and I understand that's there. I think we, we have a unique offering though, um, in that we can actually back the investment with the barrels as an asset that goes through, which sort of makes it a bit different to your standard investment. Whereas as soon as you manufacture most things, they actually depreciate in value. Yeah, they go. Up. We have the unique offering that emotionally and financially um, they go up in value. It's emotional as well. Totally. No, no, no. But I think I I think that. Just remember, you're dealing, going to be dealing with hard nosed investors who aren't going to be as. Um, no one's as passionate as you are. About they're your just own. not going to be in as love yeah. with this as you are. They want you to be in love with it. Mm. Don't, don't get me wrong, but they're not going to be thinking that way. Yeah, yeah. They're going to say, "What's my exit?" Um, and and when's it likely? Yeah. yeah. I mean, and they'll all sign a shareholders agreement. Oh, yes. That's everyone will be on a shareholders agreement. And you'll have to have a provision in there, a liquidity event, yeah. where you'll sit totally down and look yeah. at it, mm. and uh, look at the how we're going to make a dollar out of this. Um, I mean, I think it's good to have a third party representing you, like, yeah. like someone who does this stuff. And yeah. There's lots of mm. small investment banker guys or girls who do this sort of stuff. Yeah. They run these little programs and they usually have their own little cachet of high net wealth that they yeah. talk yeah. to. They come to you with them. Beautiful. No, thank awesome. you. Thanks very yeah, much. Thanks that was great. So awesome. Much. I, I'm, and you've, you've inspired me again. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've, you know, I'm, I'm looking at all these booze in front of me and hand sanitizers. I'm, I'm inspired. These um, small sample bottles, I guess that's what it is, yep. they look like perfume. They're beautifully yeah. <laughs> um, put together. I mean, just a bit of cologne on the side. It's all good. <laughs> no, they're, they're, they're very beautiful to look at. Thank they, you. They, Thank I mean, those you. bottles are worth keeping. These are the sort of bottles I've seen people will um, find these underground. Like in the ground. collectibles. Yeah, yeah they're yeah, collectibles. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe these will be collectibles that one day. OCD. Thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks Thank for you. having us. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.